Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Los Angeles police have been searching for a killer who has strangled young women and left their bodies along grassy hillsides. We've had yet another uh, set of remains identified. This is the second one that's taken place in the last several weeks. Here's a guy who likes to kill, and he gets a job as a goddamn security guard. To kill strangers in their beds, what kind of warped soul does that? I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler and the Night Stalker. Episode 4, Catch Me If You Can. It's late 1978, and we're in the small city of Bellingham in Whatcom County, Washington. Once a center of the lumber trade, it's in the process of reinventing itself as a popular tourist city. Like many young people at the time, Angela Luke has recently arrived with a bunch of friends, full of hopes, dreams, and excited to be part of the vibrant city. How did you end up in Bellingham, Washington? Well, I grew up in a very small town in North Dakota. We were a farming community, and I had gone to college in South Dakota, and it just didn't fit. So I moved back home and went to um, hair school. And after I graduated from hair school, I got a job and met this really good friend of mine. And we decided that we were going to head out to see bigger, better things. So four of us got together and headed west in two vehicles. And that's how we hit Bellingham. We couldn't go farther west. We couldn't go farther north. Tell me, what was it like back then compared to today? Oh, uh, it was a small college town. You meet friends and you stay friends forever here, but no one, I don't think, locked their doors or anything. It was just a fun town. I mean, we went out partying all the time and, you know, things that 20-year-old kids do and uh, trying to find a job and meeting new people. I was just kind of like, let's go try anything. So that's what we did. 
then something happens in your life that changes that. Tell me about a particular job you applied for and then what happened next. Well, we were kind of running out of money, so we all had to go look for jobs. Um, we did find one for a uh, security, and I figured, well, I could do something like that. So we went and filled out our applications and waited to get interviewed. And while we were waiting there, we met another girl that lived here. Her name was Margie. So you, your friend Kathy, and another young candidate named Marge are all there waiting to be interviewed. Tell me a little bit about the particular man who interviewed you. Well, I still remember to this day, it was Kathy and I sitting there, and we saw this guy walk around the corner and ask to meet each one of us individually for our interview. And we both looked at each other and went, whoa, look at him. You know, is he going to be our boss if we get this job? I mean, he was a very good looking Italian guy. <laughs> so we both, you know, looked at each other like, whoo, nice. And what did he reveal about himself during that interview? Well, he was wondering why, first of all, why we moved out here and did we have family here? and what kind of hours we could work. Well, despite that connection and good rapport, you guys didn't get the job. We did not. Marge got the job. But you did hear from him again. Tell me about that. It was getting pretty close to Christmas. And we lived out in a place called Sudden Valley. It's out a ways out of Bellingham, but the rent was cheaper. And it was like a guarded community where you had to have a passcode to get through the gate and things like that. We didn't have a telephone, of course, we were broke. So the guard come up to our door and knock and say we had a package down at the guard shack and if we could come down and pick it up. So we're going, what the heck? So we went down there and we had two bouquets of flowers to Kathy and myself saying, Merry Christmas from Ken Bianchi. Hope you have a merry one. Since the murders began three months ago, investigators have interviewed 3,000 persons and checked the whereabouts of nearly 1,000 other individuals convicted of violent crimes. But the strangler is still at large. Police admit they are stymied, and a lot of women say they are scared. Let's go back 12 months to December 1977. Three days after the murder of the ninth victim, Kimberly Martin, Bianchi goes to a local police station and makes an extraordinary request. Bob Grogan was the homicide detective with LAPD on the Hillside Strangler case at the time. He went to the Highland Parks police station and got a ride-along with a sergeant on patrol. That's a line of bullshit, baby. I mean, you walk up there and you say, hey, I want to be a policeman, man. That takes a lot of chutzpah to do that, and he did it. He did that at his place of work. He used to brag about to some girls. You know, I could be the Hillside Strangler, and you'd never know it. And that's where the marriage ended between Bono and Bianchi. Bono says, enough for this shit. He's going to get me in jail, bigger than crap. Going to the police and asking questions, I can't believe he even did that. Despite interviewing thousands of people and following a series of leads, investigators encounter dead end after dead end. Nine women and girls have been murdered, and they're no closer to finding the perpetrator than they were at the beginning of the investigation. At one point, even an actor is arrested for the crimes, only to be released soon after. 
Bianchi and Bono must have thought they'd gotten away with it. Despite tensions between the cousins, perhaps it was this that gave them the nerve to carry on. On February 16th, two months after the murder of Kimberly Martin, 20-year-old Cindy Hudspeth arrives at Bono's upholstery shop. She's there to get some new mats for her Datsun. The cousins lure her into the house, rape and murder her, then stuff her into the trunk of her own car. They then drive to Angela's Crest, where they push the vehicle over the edge of the cliff, with her in it. The car and her body are discovered the next day by a Forest Service helicopter. She's their 10th victim. Bob Grogan was there and has a theory about what may have happened. When I went up to the Cindy Hudspeth site, I really believed that was intentionally done so Bono could kill Bianchi at that time and put him in that car with Cindy Hudspeth. That's a long shot. I don't want to step on Frank Salerno's case, but when I went up to that site, a couple of guys went up there and we talked about it and we said, I'll bet you Bono was going to set this up so he was going to kill Bianchi, but something happened up there that prevented it from happening. Don't know what. But it would have been perfect for Bono to take him out then. Then, after Cindy Hudspeth's body is recovered, things go mysteriously quiet. You know, the worst thing you think about when you're a homicide detective and you're sitting in a bar drinking with your buddy is that, Jesus, we need another murder so we can get going here. No one knows where the killers have gone or where they will strike next. Bob Partler was working for the Bellingham Herald at the time. Tell us about Bianchi. What was he doing in Bellingham? Bianchi was in Bellingham because he had moved there to live with his girlfriend. They had met in Los Angeles, where they were both living at the time. She, I think, had grown up in Bellingham. She certainly had family there. Her dad was a uh, Whatcom County Sheriff's uh, deputy. And so she moved back and they had a son. So Bianchi moved to Bellingham to be with her and the son. He worked for Whatcom Security and he worked as a guard at Fred Meyer, which is a big chain store. Bianchi's girlfriend knew nothing about his crimes. In L.A., Bob Grogan is still chasing leads, unaware that one of the perpetrators is now hundreds of miles away in an entirely different state. Here's a guy who likes to kill, winds up in Bellingham. And he gets a job as a goddamn security guard. After sending flowers at Christmas, Bianchi stays in contact with Angela Luke, the young woman who had unsuccessfully interviewed with him for a security job. She's now living with her friend Marge. At this point, it's been 10 months since Bianchi was last involved in a murder. So we got a call over at Margie's house saying, Angie, would you like a job for this? Uh, it was some strike, a British petroleum strike or something like that. And I said, yeah, for sure, I'll, I'll come down there and do that. So he had told me to meet down in some guard shack down there in Anacortes and Lo and behold, that night I went to drive and my car, it was black ice on the road and my car went in the ditch. And I had to walk home and I figured, well, I already missed my job at that point. So it was like two or three in the morning. So I just stayed home. And what was Ken Bianchi's reaction to you not showing up? 
The next day he called and he was absolutely furious into the phone. I mean, I'm like, wow, how can somebody switch like that? Being like, he said, you're, you're never going to work ever again, you know, with us. We're, you know, that was just it. And that's, that's a huge departure, a huge departure from the sweet man who sent you flowers just months earlier. Yeah, I'm not used to being yelled at. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was kind of like, wow, you know, that's, that's not me, first of all, to miss a job opportunity. And secondly, to be kind of yelled at into the phone, like, yeah, that was very, very traumatic for me. I believe it was the next, it was either the next day or two days that is when he committed the other, the two murders up here. At Fred Meyer, Bianchi works with 22-year-old Karen Mandick. And on the evening of January 11th, 1979, within days of his phone call to Angela Luke, he asks her to meet him at the house he is guarding. Reporter Bob Partlow was covering the police beat at the time. He intended to kill Karen Mandy. At the last minute, I don't know if Karen Mandy thought there was something kind of sketchy about it, but she asked her roommate, Diane Wilder, to come with her because Bianchi said he was installing a burglar system at uh, a home in southern Bellingham. She told people where she was going and who she was going with and what she was going to do. I don't think Bianchi initially was expecting to have two of them. In interviews with psychiatrists in the 1970s, Bianchi gives insights into these murders. The girls were there, out in front, sitting in their car. And um, I waved them in into the driveway, and they parked their car. And we went into the house, and I showed them around the house, showed them the downstairs. I had a gun. I pulled a gun on them. Um, they were told to get onto the floor. Both of them were tied. Both girls were sexually assaulted. Diane Wilder was, was strangled first, and then Karamandic. And when they got there at the house, he killed both of them, then took their bodies in their car and moved them to a place not too far from where he killed them, just off a state route and left them there. What happened next? The theory was after they completed the job with Bianchi, she was going to come back to Fred Meyer. And when she didn't come back, the, the folks at Fred Meyer got worried. I mean, they were concerned about her. And so they called the police and... I think one of the most interesting parts to me of what happened was that they went to Bianchi's house and they actually interviewed him. I mean, the young women were already dead, but they'd interviewed him even before they knew that anything bad had happened to them. They found the bodies the next day. They immediately knew that Bianchi was the last known person who had seen them. Today, we're surrounded by tech that can track our every move. But back then, if you didn't tell someone where you were going, you could so easily disappear. This is not the case for Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder. The day after the bodies are discovered, Ken is working security at a warehouse when the police arrive, and he's arrested on suspicion of double homicide. Bob Grogan. All of a sudden, Bianchi's up in Washington. What does that look like for your department? Nothing. It's police work. Police work happens that way. You, you work with all police departments. They were a terrific police department. The chief of police was a great guy. 
Terry, one of the key investigators, a very good friend of mine, he just helped us connect the dots. And the dots was a California driver's license. You got to remember in those days in California, when your driver's license expired, you, you corrected it on the back by printing your new address on it and a date. And that's, of course, Bianca would never break the law, you know, so he did that. So when they saw the address on the back of Kenny Bianchi's California driver's license, next door to Christina Weckler, we said, oh, shit. So we got in a plane and went up there. Was that exciting for you guys? Now you finally, you've got this guy in custody. I don't think I ever got excited. If I could have talked a pilot in the private jet who was flying us back to Long Beach to let me throw him out the door on the way down, that would have been exciting. But no, that, we weren't excited because we were just beginning. I mean, what do, what do we have? We got a guy who lived next door to Christina Wickler. That's all we have. One of the most interesting parts of this investigation is how Bianchi was captured so easily so far away from L.A. by an entirely different police force. I returned to Bob Partlow. I think the location had almost everything to do with the way he was caught. Bellingham was such a small town compared to L.A., and he had killed all those women down in uh, Los Angeles. And yet he came up here and he killed these two women and, and he was boom, he was caught immediately. And I think it's because there was a small town atmosphere, small town culture. In LA, officers search Bianchi's premises and find a stash of jewelry, including a turquoise ring that matches the description of a ring worn by the first victim, Yolanda Washington and a gold ram's horn necklace that matches the description of one worn by their ninth victim, Kimberly Martin. They may have caught one of the killers, but law enforcement knows there's a second Hillside Strangler out there. Coming up, a journalist picks up the hunt for the second Strangler, and we travel to the 80s as the Night Stalker begins to terrorize L.A. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60 day money back guarantee, and US News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. It's Sunday, March 17th, 1985, St. Patrick's Day. And as Phil Collins, Madonna, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood dominate the Billboard Hot 100, 25-year-old Richard Ramirez takes to the Los Angeles freeway system in a stolen car, carrying a 22 caliber gun that he'd bought that day. Last June, he'd murdered 79-year-old Jenny Vincow in her own home in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. The brutality of the crime had shocked investigators, but it remains unsolved, and Ramirez has spent the subsequent months feeding a cocaine addiction by burglarizing homes. Not tonight. Tonight, he is going to kill again. While he drives, he spots a gold Camaro nearby. The driver is Maria Hernandez, who is on her way home to the suburb of Rosemead after having dinner with her boyfriend. Ramirez follows her. He tracks her as she takes turn after turn before finally arriving at a condo she shares with her roommate, Dale Okazaki. He gets out of the car and takes the gun with him. Ken Davis was a reporter for CBS at the time. She was shot in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. Incredibly, she survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys she held in her hands as she lifted them to protect herself. She played dead until the suspect left the scene. Inside the house, her roommate heard the gunshot and ducked behind a counter when she saw the suspect enter the kitchen. When she raised her head to get a look at what had happened, she was shot once in the face, killing her instantly. The initial idea that the violence had been the result of a love triangle is pushed to one side because, against the odds, Hernandez survives the attack and provides the detectives with a description. The assailant was a thin man around 5'10", with dark hair and scary eyes. Little did they know, this man has already taken to the highway again to stalk a new victim. I return to Ken Davis. Tell me what happened next. Within an hour of the Rosemead home invasion, Ramirez pulled 30-year-old Veronica Yu out of her car in Monterey Park. He shot her twice and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. Those two murders and the attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from the news media. 
Often murders are in the inner city. Now they are happening in suburbs. The murder of Veronica Yu is initially thought to be a lover's quarrel gone wrong. But this is quickly disregarded after detectives speak with her family and friends. What's more, the autopsies of the two murdered victims reveal a connection. The bullets appear to have come from the same gun. In the sheriff's office, Gil Carrillo is the lead homicide detective on the cases and is dumbfounded. He brings in veteran Hillside Strangler detective Frank Salerno to help. If they've been shot from the same gun, what on earth could be the connection between the victims? While investigators work the case, Ramirez devotes himself completely to Satanism, believing that the more violent the crimes, the more Satan would be pleased with him. In an interview with author Philip Carlo, he offers an insight into his twisted faith. The words are authentic and read by an actor. Satan is a stabilizing force in my life. It gives me reason to be, it gives me an excuse to rationalize. When I reached the age of 20, 21, thereabouts, I met a guy in jail and he told me about Satan and I picked it up from there. I read books and I studied and I examined who I was and what my feelings were. Also my actions. Ten days later, during the early hours of March 27th, Ramirez rolls gently onto a quiet street in the suburb of Whittier. The engine and lights of his stolen Toyota are turned off. He stops near a home he'd robbed the year before, that of Vincent Zazara, a restaurateur, and his wife, Maxine Zazara, an attorney, and their son. Creeping into the backyard, he finds a dislodged window screen and slinks into their home while they're sleeping. He finds Vincent first. He's asleep on the couch. Ramirez removes the 22 caliber gun from his waistband and shoots Vincent in the head, killing him. He then sneaks to the bedroom, where he finds Maxine awake, startled from the gunshot. Linda Deutsch was a reporter for the Associated Press at the time. She was attacked by Ramirez, and she begged for him to leave her child alone. That was the main thing she was concerned about, was her child was in the house. And pleaded with him for mercy, but he had no mercy. And he raped her and gouged her eyes out and murdered her. I believe that the child did witness part of it. And it was beyond anything that you could imagine that one human being would impose on another human being. There was no explanation for it. There was no explanation for any of the killings, but that one in particular was just so horrific. He escapes the scene with stolen items, including jewelry, a VCR, a shotgun, and Maxine Zazara's eyes. He's left behind evidence. There are shoe prints in the flower bed and on the container he used to climb into the window. It is the manager of Vincent's restaurant who raises the alarm a day later when he hadn't heard from his boss. Upon entering the property, investigators find a deeply disturbing crime scene. What kind of person removes someone's eyes? I speak to Linda Deutsch about the prevalence of disturbing murder sprees in the 1970s and 1980s. It was a different time. It was a time when there were some weird people on the streets, I guess. There was the Hillside Strangler case. There was the Manson case. It's as if these people with 
damaged souls just came into being on the planet at the same time. It's a quandary that no one will ever be able to explain. Why does somebody decide to kill people they don't know? That's the big issue. To kill strangers in their beds. What kind of warped soul does that? It's easier to understand crimes of passion you know, a husband kills a wife or a wife kills a husband or children kill parents or whatever. It's a personal thing. And, and it's often in families or in marriages. But the killing of strangers is, you know, inexplicable. Back in 1979, Police have Bianchi in their custody, but there's still another Hillside Strangler at large. And, unlike Bianchi, he's right under their nose. Leo McElroy was working for ABC News at the time. When Kenny Bianchi is arrested in Bellingham, Washington, my boss, who by this time is a guy who doesn't like me very much, so he comes to me and says, um, all right, wise guy, you've always said there were two killers, they just got the guy. Where's your second killer? And I said, you want me to go find him? And he said, yeah, let's put your, put your effort where your mouth is, you know. He said, be nice, you got a story on the air once in a while about it. And that's how you got deeply involved in this. Suddenly, I began to develop information. And uh, we got pretty lucky pretty fast. I had a young researcher working f with me, Jeff Kurion, who was brilliant at getting people to talk. And uh, so there were places, if I went, they would know who I was, but they didn't know who Jeff was. And he began picking up indications for us in a hurry where to look. Another of our reporters had a source who told him about Kenny Bianchi and Angelo Buono, his cousin, running a teenage prostitution scheme and using it to blackmail people back before the killings began. And that pretty well told us that a good place to start looking was at Buono. Wasn't it likely that he was involved in this other stuff? I'm surprised they hadn't looked there yet. It was amazing. It was amazing. There was a feeling as we uncovered information that these were things law enforcement should know about. So we did. Occasionally they would say, don't publish that yet, um, but we'll let you know when you can. Most of the time we went ahead and published whatever we wanted to publish, but we made sure that, that they knew about it. But there were all kinds of uneasy vibes in this process. Yes, because one of the ways Bianchi and Bono tricked women and girls into their car was by impersonating cops. And so we began to turn up information about the links between the two of them. The one thing that we really were kind of puzzled by was the link seemingly to the Los Angeles Police Department. 
and that somehow there was an involvement with them. Well, we turned up two things. One, that Kenny Bianchi had, in fact, during the course of the murders, been applying to be a reserve LA Police Department officer. The second thing was still trying to find other links to law enforcement. We had heard from neighbors of the Buonos that when Grandpa died, Angelo and Kenny had gotten Grandpa's badge and gun. So we thought we'd follow on that. Jeff was quick enough to get his social security number from the landlord that he'd rented from. I thought that was worth a little bit of pushing and I called an internal revenue service agent that I knew and he gave me the employment record. This man had worked at several rent-a-cop security firms. I said, ah, okay, so Grandpa had a security guy badge. I went to the first firm and said, I want to confirm that Angela Buono, the elder, worked here. He handed me the personnel record and there at the bottom was the notation that Angela Buono Sr. was a reserve Los Angeles Police Department officer with a badge and guns, and handcuffs, and all that stuff. That's where they got their disguise material to fake being cops when they took the girls. And I went back to my office, called LAPD, and said, in a rather snarky tone, I'm afraid, you guys ought to know this, but hey, here's the information. The cop said, oh my God, don't put that on the air yet. Let me get back to you. I said, it goes on the air at five o'clock, whether you're back to me or not. And it did. Armed with this knowledge and intelligence from their own investigations, police plan to arrest Bono early the next morning. Leo McElroy, who has been doing regular television news stories about the case, gets a tip off. We staked out the house for about three hours in this unmarked car until suddenly police cars come wheeling in, black and white cars from the sheriff's department. And they went zooming in and marched Angelo Buono out in cuffs. He stared at me all the time they were marching him to the police car to put him in. Back in Bellingham, news of the connection between Bianchi and the Hillside Strangler case spreads like wildfire. Angela Luke is now living with her friend, Marge. What is your reaction? Well, we, we both just went, no, there is absolutely no way. They got the wrong guy. There's just no way that that guy could have murdered two girls. I mean, it was like, whoa. We read it in the paper, I believe it was. It was just, yeah, we just couldn't fathom. The discrepancy between the public-facing Bianchi and the brutal crimes he's been charged with committing would have a powerful effect on proceedings. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ariana Nesbitt. Ken Bianchi started saying that, well, I've got these gaps and I can't remember what happened during these periods of time. And some experts came in and they started evaluating him, specifically under hypnosis, and all of a sudden, 
this other personality or who he said was his other personality um, came forth and unlike Ken Bianchi who he put forth as this perfect charming upstanding member of society his alter ego Steve was a classic psychopath and a killer and was uh, willing to discuss at length um, all the murders that he had committed under hypnosis and a lot of experts said you know this is textbook multiple personality disorder he is absolutely insane Ken Bianchi the real person here had no idea that his alter ego was committing these murders and you couldn't you absolutely couldn't prosecute him for this it's not his fault and he needs treatment in historical archive interviews with Bianchi we can hear the multiple personality voice of quote-unquote Steve and the beginning of one of the most extraordinary criminal cases I have ever seen. Why did you decide to not kill anyone? Fuck, I know. Is that when he decided to move? I wanted to. I wanted to fucking kill more broads, you know? But him, he's got, you know... Fuck him, man. You know, I don't want him to fight me. I want to come out when I fucking feel like it. Is there anybody else in there who does fight you? Besides Ken? No, just him. Anybody who stops you? Just that fucking asshole. He's such a goody-goody two-shoes. Fuck him and his fucking way of life. In the next episode, criminal psychiatry is pushed to the limits in the fight to diagnose Bianchi. The outcome will determine if one of the most dangerous men on the planet could walk free. And the hunt for the Night Stalker begins. Mind of a Monster, The Hillside Strangler and the Night Stalker is produced by Arrow Media for ID. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.